Hey guys, um, this is Faye and I'm the producer of the Enabled Disabled podcast and project. And it's my honor to help open today's interview and discussion with our very special interviewer, Gustavo Serafini, who's also the founder of Enabled Disabled and our special guest, Derek Gaunt. And so just a, a quick housekeeping item and I'm gonna give the stage right to these guys. So this free interview and discussion is brought to you by Enable Disabled. And I wanna tell you a bit more about our podcast and project, which is created for people um, with a disability, as well as their families, friends, clinicians, and therapists. And this platform helps dive into how our guests have experienced disability, what has it taught them about themselves, their lives, about others, what tools or experiences has helped them to better navigate and adapt to the world, and what do they wish other people would know about them? What are they working on right now, and how would they like to improve the world? So you can learn more about our project and podcast at enableddisabled.com. Um, there's also a special section there we can, where you can actually share your own story on our blog. So please check it out and help us spread the word. So about today's discussion, what will you learn and experience? Um, you will learn how to negotiate with caregivers, healthcare professionals, doctors, how to use tactical empathy to talk to your boss, for instance, how to use basic and more advanced negotiation tactics to live a better life. And let me briefly introduce our um, presenters here on the screen with me. Um, so Derek Gunn is the former leader and commander of hostage negotiations teams in Washington, D.C. for 20 years. He's also the author of Eagle, Authority and Failure. Derek is a lecturer, coach, author and the trainer with 29 years of law enforcement experience. Next is our interviewer, Gustavo Serafini, who is the founder of the Enable Disabled Project, born with proximal femoral focal deficiency, PFFD. Disability has taught Gustavo many life lessons and allowed him to meet with incredible friends and mentors along the way. Lastly is our co-producer to Adam Lefford, freelance web and .NET developer, who has been instrumental since the very beginning in helping us strategize strategize the podcast with growth strategies, social media. Today, Adam will help us from an operational perspective, review questions as you send through the chat. So speaking of which, many of us are not unfamiliar with Zoom, but here's some, uh, here some tips. Uh, if you'd like to um, engage with us today, you can send questions through the chat window. And if time permits, we might open up live Q&A where you can ask your questions live. And we encourage you to turn on video during the session because we like to meet you. But for audio, please make sure that you are muted while sitting and listening and unmute yourself when we, when we open for a Q&A. So with that said, I'm going to turn the stage to Gustavo, host of the show today. Great. Thank you all so much for being here. Derek, thank you for being here. I know some of you have gotten up super early and it's just terrific to see everybody. Um, let's get started. So okay. before, before we open up for the first question, Derek, there's a point about empathy that I think is important to emphasize mm -hmm. that not a lot of people teach, um, which you guys do teach. Um, and it's really struck home with me. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it. So empathy is a skill. It's a trained skill that you use, but you don't have to have common ground with the other person in order to use it. And you don't even necessarily have to like the other person in order to show empathy. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why that is? Well, I, it, tactical empathy for the definition, let's get that out of the way first. That's your deliberate attempt at recognizing the perspective of another person and then more importantly articulating that recognition because when it's all said and done all of us have an innate desire or drive to have someone else understand our perspective and our view of the world you don't understand their worldview you don't understand them you don't understand them you're not going to be able to influence them and we're the concept of not pursuing common ground or not liking the other side, that's born directly out of hostage negotiations because, I mean, you can probably imagine um, I didn't have any common ground with the people that I negotiated with inside the crisis site. I certainly didn't like them very much. 
And I certainly didn't agree with their action, but none of that is necessary. I just have to demonstrate for them that I understand what the lay of the land looks like from their perspective. And, you know, in, in, in the States, at least as hostage negotiators, we've gotten to be pretty good at it. We've our success rate of employing tactical empathy to influence surrender is somewhere around 93%. And so this is not something that's theoretical. This is something that's been tested and proven in some of the highest of stakes conversations out there. And so I say all of that to say hostage negotiators and sociopaths, those two groups of people are the best purveyors of tactical empathy on the planet. And both of us, both groups of people use it not because they're nice people, but we use it because it works. You know, Ted Bundy, um, and I, Gustavo, you've heard me tell the story before. Ted Bundy was executed for the murder of a 12-year-old girl in Florida. And that number, one, pales in comparison to the number of murders that he was actually involved in. And so you got to ask yourself, how was this guy able to get seemingly intelligent um, young people into positions of compromise that ultimately cost them everything? It was because he had a keen appreciation of tactical empathy and he knew how to execute. Okay, so it's, it's a powerful tool. It works, it's effective, obviously. Uh, so what, I don't, I don't it's, it's really interesting to think about, but it, it's really about being able to put yourself inside the mind of, not, not, put yourself inside what somebody else is feeling, what somebody else is thinking, how they see the world, and then show them that you understand it. That's, that, yeah, that's the, and, and the, the last part of what you just said is critical. Show them that you, that you understand and articulate it for them. That's the important thing. You don't need to feel what they feel to demonstrate tactical empathy. You know, there's that old saying that um, you need to walk a mile in another man's shoes to understand what he's going through. And that's tantamount to feeling what he feels. And you don't need to feel what they feel. You need to not walk in their shoes, but to see through their eyes. Because their perception is going to be dramatically different from your perception. And it's easy for us to say, well, that's wrong. And then turn off our listening. We focus on our own internal monologue. That's the easiest thing for us to do is to, is to assume that what they're telling us is wrong and then turn off. And so with tactical empathy, what you're doing is you're saying to yourself, I have something to learn in this conversation. And if you approach every difficult conversation, whether it's with a caregiver, whether it's with an employee or an employer, whether it's with a family member, regardless of how long that relationship has been in existence, whether it's five minutes or five years, you're going to a difficult conversation, go in suspending judgment and assume that you have something to learn about the perspective of the person that you're engaged with. That does a couple of things that keeps you, that keeps you on, that keeps you on the hunt, if you will, for new information, but it also prevents you from getting triggered during the conversation because your brain doesn't really work that way. Your brain cannot be triggered and curious at the same time. You're either going to be angry or you're going to be curious. You can't be both. And so staying curious, suspending judgment is, is what tactical empathy is all about. Viola is asking, can we get an example of demonstrating uh, an understanding of somebody else's perspective? I know, I'm sure you have plenty of examples, but if you don't mind, I'd just like to tell one quick story. Sure. Sure. So Derek, when, when I first met you and Chris and Brandon in person for the training, um, I walked into the room and you, you're, you were all very friendly and, you know, I could tell that Chris wanted to say something to me. He wanted, he wanted to already demonstrate tactical empathy, but he wasn't sure what to say. So he just said something nice. He held off later on during a break. We're walking back into the room and Chris says to, he stops me and he says to me, you know what? You seem like the type of person who doesn't give up easily. And that 
it's not all of me, but that label showed that he understood a core part of my personality. He saw somebody with a disability who was there doing his thing, and he acknowledged that I probably have a lot of perseverance in my life. I probably don't take no for an answer easily. And that felt really good. Mm -hmm. and the reason I still remember that label for, is for two reasons. One, he, he understood a part of me without just through observation and trying to get inside my head. And number two, it was a great teaching moment right there of the power of a label. And if you, is it, I've never really been able to pronounce this correctly. Is it viola or viola? So it should be, it should be either. Um, but I, I go by viola. Okay. Viola. Yeah, that was, that was a perfect example. That was a perfect example of demonstrating tactical empathy. But Gustavo did not walk into our event and say to the world, I don't give up easy. I don't take no for an answer. Nowhere in his initial dialogue with anybody, at least on the instructor cadre, did he ever say that? So how did Chris leap to that conclusion? He made a situationally insightful, intelligent guess based on the data that Gustavo was giving off just by being present in the room. That's where tactical empathy starts, is your, your observation. Before you can, before you can uh, recognize their perspective and then articulate it, it has to come from data given off by the other person. So what you heard Chris do for him there was just a simple label. He just labeled the dynamics as he saw it. He's saying to Gustavo, this is the data that I'm picking up from you. And you notice that he structured it with, it seems like you're not the type of guy to give up easy. He said, it seems like. He didn't say this is a fact. He said, it seems like. Translation, this is what I'm picking up from you. And because he laid it out with, it seems like, he's always going to be on safe ground. Because... Either Gustavo is going to have the reaction that he did, or he's going to correct Chris and tell him what the actual facts are, which is the main reason why we, we use it looks, it seems, it sounds. It provides us with a little safety net. Because if, even if he had, even if he had um, crossed the line with Gustavo based on that label, he never said that Gustavo was a person who didn't give up. He said he seemed like. So that gives him wiggle room to be corrected by Gustavo if Chris's label was wrong. And you guys should know that one of the laws of negotiation gravity is the desire to correct is irresistible. Because the desire to correct is irresistible, even if you get your label wrong, you're going to get more information because they, people can't wait to tell you how you got it wrong. They can't tell you, wait to tell you how stupid you are. They can't wait to tell you uh, how you're way off the mark. So even if Chris had gotten it wrong, that desire to correct would have led Gustavo to correct him and provide more information. But the beautiful part about that story is that it illustrates that listening and observing is the cheapest and most effective concession that you can make one person to another. It makes people, to Gustavo's point, feel so good when you start to identify, especially latent dynamics and emotions on the other side. As I said before, that was a latent dynamic that Chris picked up on because Gustavo never, he never said anything about not being a quitter, but Chris picked up on it. In every difficult conversation, if you are in tune with the other person, you're going to uncover the presenting dynamic or emotion. If you're really good, the latent dynamic or emotion, because when you start to identify dynamics and emotions that have not been articulated yet, there's no clearer way to demonstrate that you're dialed in with another person, which is why 
it puts so much wind in Gustavo's sails after um, Chris said that, because that was a latent dynamic or emotion, something that he hadn't spoken to existence. And it feels really good when people are able to label things that you haven't spoken into the ether. I mean, Chris, Chris could have said so many things, right? He could have said, boy, it seems like you have it rough. That would have been a totally different reaction. Sure. Right? And then, and then I would have corrected him and said, well, you know, not really, Chris, you know, but, but he took, he took another, he, he observed it. Like you said, it was an educated guess. He made a good observation. Um, and he, and, and it, and it resonated to the point where I still remember it. You know, what is it? Two, two years later, two and a half mm -hmm. years later. Right. 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 Because what happens is in that moment, this is, this is another powerful um, attribute, I guess, of tactical empathy in that in that moment, you got to hit a dopamine and you got to hit of oxytocin. That's where that good feeling comes from. That's what makes it a lasting memory for you. That's what you're doing with the people that you interact with when you engage in tactical empathy, you're giving them small hits of dopamine, small hits of oxytocin, and they don't know, they can't really put their finger on it, but they know that, wow, talking to Gustavo is a pleasure. We've talked about labels. It looks like, it seems like, it sounds like. One of the other techniques out of the quick two plus one are mirrors where you're just repeating back the last one to three words that the other side has given you their words coming out of your mouth to me there's probably not a clearer way to demonstrate that you're dialed into the conversation than when you actually use their words and you speak them back into their ear and uh chris and brandon the president of the company did a training session at a yoga retreat if you can, can get your mind around that um, they did a training session at a, at a yoga retreat, and one of the people there, they wound up nicknaming him Johnny Mirrors, because all he did for the entire two days of the conference is, not all he did, but the majority of the conversations that he was engaged in, he was throwing out mirror after mirror after mirror after mirror, and he became a hit of the conference because there, there were no shortage of people that were walking up to his wife going, your husband is the greatest. I had such an enjoyable time talking to him. Uh, he listened so well. And it's all because all he did was mirror the entire time, which is how he got his nickname. But the fact that he was taking other people's words and giving him right back to them, almost verbatim, sent them through the roof. They loved it. They love the fact that they've got somebody who's actually being attentive to them during the course of the conversation. He identified himself as an outlier in that regard because most people don't listen to that, to that depth throughout the course of the day. And so when we, are, when we encounter someone who does, oh my gosh, it feels great. If you guys don't believe me, you try this low stakes practice. Low stakes practice, go to your favorite store and engage whoever's working behind the counter with, with the common salutation, how are you today? Wait for their response. And then whatever response they give you, label the dynamic or label the emotion that you're picking up on and watch what happens to them. Watch how that barista at Starbucks, they get asked 100 times a day, how are you? 99 people that ask that question of them do not care. It's a throwaway salutation. That's what, that's how we say hello now. How's it going? Nobody cares, but you throw out a, how's it going? Wait for their response and then label that response and watch how much more information you get from that person working behind the counter. Now I would tell you to be cautious in your execution in this regard, because you're going to wind up making everybody standing behind you in line angry because you and the barista or you and the person working the counter are going to be engaged in the conversation for a substantive amount of time because nobody in that person's workday has taken the time to actually demonstrate that they're listening.
That's a great one. Um, if and please feel free to ask some more questions away at the chat. I I wanted to ask you, Derek, real quick. So I had a situation with a with a doctor, probably about six months ago, that I just would like to take us through real quick, and then you can tell me what I missed or okay. what maybe I could have done better. Okay. So I was having a lot of a lot of knee pain. Um, I had been to a couple of other doctors who weren't really helpful. And this gentleman was a specialist with my, with my, uh, condition. And, um, the, the dynamics of it were, he really wanted to stamp his expertise on me. So he was basically saying, of course, you're having pain, you know, your leg, your leg, your legs and your hips aren't straight that's going to lead to long-term pain. We need to try to do reconstructive surgery. You know, we need to explore these, these different surgical options. And I want to do like this profound imaging on your, on your knee, on your hip, and let's try to do a whole like reconstruction. I was there um, to say, look, I need, I need an, I need an MRI. We want to see what's going on. Um, I've been doing some therapy and the therapy has been helping. And he was just undercutting everything. You know, therapy can't hurt, but it's not really going to be helpful. This is something that you're always going to have, and this is the solution. And my reaction to that after about half an hour of back and forth was I shut down. I said, this is not the doctor for me. This is a waste of my time. I'm going to go find somebody else to deal with the situation. So when you are, when you are in a medical office like that, and you are not getting like, the doctor never asked me, have you ever had this pain before? Is this something new? You're 44 years old. What's your history of pain? That question never came up. You know, have you tried therapy? Has it been helpful for you in the past? That question never, never came up. The only option on the table in his mind was, we need to explore surgery. And so, um... He's a specialist, right? Yep. So there, there are three types of negotiator personalities within the black swan method, assertive analyst and accommodator. You find the largest number of assertives in the medical field by virtue of the fact that they are doctors Nurses, for that matter, by virtue of the fact that they are nurses, they've gone through a level of education that you didn't. So they're already coming at you from a place of superiority. What's as important to an assertive than coming to an agreement or coming to a resolution or making a deal? It's to be heard and be respected. And so what you missed in that interaction is catering to that personality type. Specifically, the questions that you didn't get asked, obviously that you were expecting to get asked, um, should have been put on the table by you. If your expectation is to have him ask you about history, then after he's told you that he's provided, he's trying to do different surgical procedures to include reconstruction, you know, it's, it sounds like you landed on that decision without any consideration for my medical history. That is a deferential way for you to say, hey, look, don't you think we need to dive deeper into my case before we start electing to start cutting on me and it's and 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 you're doing it in a subordinate fashion you're not you're not challenging his knowledge you're just throwing out the dynamic that you're getting from that doctor it seems like you're taking this consider this reconstruction surgery under consideration without understanding what my full medical history is it sounds like you're 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 willing to to risk all of the things that you risk when you start cutting on people 
without understanding what kind of rehabilitation or therapy I've already gone through. And you see the upward inflection on both of those. They're labels, but they're questions because I upward inflected at the end, which is different than a calibrated question. A calibrated question for an assertive personality type can spark arguments because they feel like you're questioning their expertise, you're questioning their authority. And I'm continually amazed how people who are theoretically and academically smarter than me, how much more information they vomit up for me when I take my question and I turn it into a label. A question that I know that they would never answer if I put a what or how in front of it, but they will answer if I use an asking, um, an asking label. So what did you miss? Personality type. Whenever there's an impasse, a large part of that impasse is usually due to a mismatch in personality types. And the fact that you, um, you haven't aligned with them based on that type. And what I mean by that is we have found that the world basically breaks into thirds. There's assertives, there's analysts, and there's accommodators. This is your default personality type. This is not who you are in your regular day to day. This is who you are when you've got skin in the game, the stakes are high and the pressure is on. And you and I are gonna engage in a conversation. And as soon as we get on the phone or as soon as we get into the conference room, I figuratively smack you in the face with a brick right off the bat. What's your response to that? The assertive is gonna smack me back. The analyst is going to shut down like you did in, in this conversation. The accommodator is gonna wonder what they did wrong and try to repair the relationship. That's your default. Who do you, when you get smacked in the face during a difficult conversation, what do you default to? Um, so you, you missed that aspect of it. And more often than not, if I've got no other evidence to support it, the mere fact that you said that this person is a surgeon or a specialist, I'm automatically gonna put him in the assertive category and I'll continue to test that hypothesis throughout the course of the conversation. Um, but as an analyst, I know that they need to talk. I know that they need to have their ego stroked. So I'm going to do a lot less talking and a lot more listening, uh, which is pretty much a stance you should take anyway. And then I'm going to use those asking labels to ferret out what drove, what's driving his decision. Because a person that's locked in on a decision, in this case, reconstructive surgery, and hasn't considered other options, even though the other options are out there, their reality is um, their reality is a miss. And so what causes someone's reality to be not aligned with what's actually going on? Emotions. What are, the, what are the emotions or the driving forces here? He's a specialist. He gets paid to cut on people. He's done research. He's done studies. That's why he became a specialist. And so if I'm a specialist at making model airplanes, I'm not going to be interested in going out and buying an already constructed airplane. My specialty is putting these things together myself, even though it takes time, even though it takes uh, a lot more energy. If that's my specialty, that's what I'm going to default to. So your failure to recognize the importance of that for him, because that's what he's screaming at you. This is what I do. This is my identity. The fact that you were wanted to talk about rehab, the MRI, other options meant that he can't show you his expertise. And that's an affront. He's defensive because of that. And now you've spiked up in a negative emotion in his brain, which is impeding his ability to process. I don't care how long he's been a doctor. I don't care how long he's been a specialist. He's been a human being for longer than either of those. And he's got an amygdala. And when, that, and when he feels threatened, that amygdala fires up. Negative emotions now bouncing around in his head. And whatever's supposed to be going on in the prefrontal cortex is not. And so you're scratching your head going, why can't he see the fact that there are other options out here prior to reconstructive surgery that we need to explore 
He can't see it because he's got blinders on because you are in that moment a threat. And no meaningful dialogue can take place as long as you are viewed as a threat. No, you're you're right, Derek, and and I think the Viola also has another question here. But um, I think that I, well, my instinct was to fight back. That's mm -hmm. that's who I am, and so I almost started down that path. Um, actually, technically did in the beginning of the conversation, and then I backed myself off, and we had a somewhat productive rest of the session. But to me, my thinking was, I don't want to do, I don't want to have a relationship with a physician like this, I'm just going to go find another one. Right. So yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of shut down part, part of the way through, because to me, I didn't need to be there. I didn't need to engage with them and it didn't seem worth it to me, but the way, the way you analyze the situation, if that, if that doctor was important to me, and if I did want to continue the relationship, I should have done those things. I should have been more deferential, stroked his ego, made him feel like his expertise um, within the surgical domain was, was highly valued. Right, right. Because everybody, like I said at the beginning of this, everybody wants somebody else to understand their circumstances and their perspective. And surgeons are, not, are no different. Now, the sooner you guys can identify with them, the, the patient load that they carry, the pressure that they're under because of COVID documentation requirements, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the complexity of healthcare issues that they're up against. And they're, you know, they're on the front lines all the time and they don't know when they're going to contract what from whom. And so all of those pressures and, and stressors are, are on them and they're, they're expected to be perfect in bedside manner and in execution. That's a lot of pressure. And most patients don't recognize that for the healthcare workers that they interact with. Most, most patients say, say, hey, it's me. I don't care what went on with the patient before me. I don't care what's going to go on with the patient behind me. This is me. And I want your full undivided attention on me and my needs, which is antithetical to how we navigate difficult, how you should be navigating difficult conversations. It should not be about you. At least for the first 75, 80% of that conversation, it should be focused on what impact does my interaction with this person in this moment have on them. And the sooner you start to think in a manner where it's not all about you, it becomes easier to defer. It becomes easier to, to demonstrate tactical empathy and probably the most powerful attribute of tactical empathy is it encourages reciprocity. And so if you had gone into that conversation and told that doctor, I know you are overwhelmed right now. I know you're seeing cases coming in left and right, and it's hard for you to come up for air. And you're going to think that I'm another uneducated, needy patient who's going to dictate what my care is going to be. And quite frankly, you find that to be a pain. If you had started the conversation with that, his bluster, his chest puffing, his holier than thou attitude would have been diminished. I'm, didn't, I'm not saying that it would have gone away completely, but you were taking the first steps of throwing those rocks into the creek bed so that you can get to the other side where he's standing and collaborate with him on what your care is going to look like going forward. Thank you. Uh, I will, I'm going to try that next time. Um, Viola's question is a strong one here, and I think she says, um, in a situation where a person with a disability relies on a personal care assistant for their care, and the personal care assistant has complete physical control, which in the worst case scenario means that that person could harm the per physically harm the person with the disability. How can the disabled person maintain control and a sense of safety if the PCA starts an argument? Again, 
All right, so Viola and, and all of you. Curiosity, curiosity, curiosity. We get so wrapped around the axle when it comes to aberrant behavior or statements that we're missing, we're missing the why. And so that should be top of mind in every conversation, especially one in which an argument, it was started by way of an argument, focusing on where it's coming from, not what's being said. We get, it, we get freaked out, you know, the PCA starts to attack us and, and, and when now we're yelling back at them and now it's a shouting match back and forth about what's gonna happen next. If a PCA starts to attack you, your challenge is determining where it's coming from. Because the, the attack in and of itself is outside the norm. Whenever there's behavior outside the norm, you gotta figure out what's driving. The attack from the PCA means you're missing something. They're under tremendous pressure on their side and you fail to recognize it or they're trying to manipulate you because that's what attacks do for a lot of people. You know, when people, when people get attacked, they back off of their position. The people that are doing the attacking knows that the probability that someone is going to back off their position after the attack is very real. That's why the manipulators will use that as a ploy. Because if I start yelling at you, Viola, I know that there's a better than average chance that you're going to back off your position because my yelling at you makes you uncomfortable. And as human beings, when we are uncomfortable, what we want more than anything else as fast as possible is to get comfortable again. And that usually will lead us to acquiescing or compromising our position when we have no business doing it. So focus on the driver, not the behavior. Where is it coming from? If I get attacked during an argument, the first thing I think is, okay, I'm failing to be sensitive to something that's really important to them. And this is the manifestation of my not listening. That's where this attack is coming from. So I'm going to go at it like that. I'm going to label it just like that. I'm going to apologize for whatever I said or did that initiated the attack. Whether you're wrong or not, suck it up, make the apology. Don't underestimate the currency and the value of an apology. Apologize. I'm sorry. It seems like something I just did or said set you off. And it also seems like I'm failing to be sensitive to something that's really important to you. And unless you're dealing with a, uh, an out and out, this is a scientific term, crazy person, your attempt at identifying that will be enough to start to bring that emotional level on the part of the PCA down. So during the difficult conversation, during the attack, Stay in the moment. Don't run from that moment because there's something there that they're trying to convey to you that you're not picking up. And that's one of the first questions I ask is where is this coming from? What am I missing? What am I failing to be sensitive to? Um, have I identified the fact that I understand that they are under tremendous pressure on their side? Or is this, this person's MO? Are they doing this to try to manipulate me? Those are the three places that the attack comes from. You have to stay in the moment to figure out which one of the three. Pivoting away and moving on to a different topic is not an option because you still have failed to recognize what's going on with them. And the longer you take to recognize what's going on with them and then articulate that recognition, the longer it's going to take for them to return to a normal functioning level. And Gustavo, there's a life question coming from Linda as well, whenever she's ready. Linda, would you Linda, like to your, ask? Your, your microphone is muted. Please unmute yourself. Sure. Um, so um, my experience is similar, but different than Gustavo's. Um, I was in a life-altering car accident. Uh, I'm married to a physician. Um, I'm a martial artist. 
Um, so when I showed up um, for my surgeries, I had similar but different um, experiences in that surgeons didn't want to do surgery because my injuries were so bad. I was fortunate that my I had my physician husband with me who would say, yeah, but what about doing surgery and what are the outcomes? I noticed that surgeons would defer to my husband because he was a very well-known physician and I was able to get those surgeries that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten. Um, that when they would get aggressive, the minute they would find out that, oh, it's Dr. Swerdlow, that, that the things would dial down and they would dial back and suddenly they would be respectful in ways that I would never have gotten had I been just Linda coming in. Um, there were times when he wasn't with me and I would just sit and listen because my philosophy was get other people to teach you what they don't know they know or only one person can dance on the head of a pin and it's mm -hmm. my shoe that's going to be dancing but I'm sitting here looking at this person that I could turn around and walk out but I can't how do you deal with somebody who's obviously either afraid and aggressive that you just have to deal with I mean you can walk out but it's not going to accomplish anything but they're obviously afraid because you just your presence challenges them but you have to stay there in the moment because this is the person who's got the reputation for being the best in that field but yet because you've asked them a question that they don't necessarily like like well, why do you want to do this surgery? Or why don't you want to do this surgery? And now suddenly, because you've just asked them that question, they are enraged. Well, all right. So what what do you I'm gonna I'm gonna make you noodle this through, Linda, okay. because, because you have the answer in your head also. What do you why do you want to do this surgery? What makes that an enraging question? For me to ask them or me to ask myself? For you to ask them. I'm a surgeon and you're going to come into my office. You're going to ask me, well, well, why do you want to do this surgery? Why would that enrage me? Well, in my case, they didn't. They just said, give up, go home, live in pain in the corner and just be done with it. So in my case, I had the opposite of Gustavo. My injuries were so severe that they were like, you're allergic to narcotics. You can't get through that surgery without them. Learn to live with the pain and just be done with it, which was basically a death sentence. And I was like, I can't live like this. I need this surgery. You're not realistic. All right. You but know, as, as a surgeon, you started off the question with why. Okay. With anybody not just surgeons, but it's exacerbated when you're dealing with surgeons. You ask them why you have now tipped the balance of the relationship. Now you are taking a position of superiority based on no education at all. You, when you ask someone why, you're telling them there is a correct answer to this, my friend, and you don't have it. You are all you are you're putting yourself in a position of superiority because you are getting ready to explain. And if you are explaining, you're teaching. If you're teaching, you're in an authority position over the person to whom you're speaking. Why there's a version of why in every language on the planet, and in every language on the planet, it provokes defensiveness. So you're, you're so not trying to offend him, you're not trying to provoke defensiveness. But that is how it lands. And so, and I'll let you continue here in a second, but I'm going to throw this out for your consideration. Okay. If we have to rewind that conversation and start it all over again, we have a tool called the accusations audit, which is just a preemptive label. This is you labeling things that haven't been spoken yet. What are the things, negative emotions, and the negative opinions, assumptions, and impressions that they have about you when you walk into the room? What negative opinions, in other words, you should be asking yourself, if I was the surgeon, what would I be thinking about Linda? Oh, yeah, and I, already had, I had already figured all of those things out. Did you, did you speak them into the air? Yes, I did. 
Okay, great. That's now you're probably saying, well, I still didn't leave there with the answer or the response that I was looking for. Um, there's no magic bullet. All of these skills are incremental before asking the actual question. You simply tell him or her, listen, this is going to catch you off guard. That's great. You are going to think that you're going to want, you're going to want to stab me in the eye with a pen or try. <laughs> you're, you're going to want, you're going to, you're going to think that I am another know-it-all needy patient who has the best ideas as to what my care should look like. And you're probably tired of hearing people like that. You may also be concerned about the fact that my husband is a renowned surgeon as well. And that may be a bit off-putting. Are you against walking me through why you can't do this surgery? Oh, no, they were very forthcoming. So just so you know, I did go on. Thanks. You know, thanks to my husband getting me in with the right surgeon. I did go on and find the right surgeon. And he he didn't want to do surgery either because no one likes to do surgery on someone who's allergic to narcotics. He did do surgery. And I do have 100% of my former range and mobility. Okay. And it was really difficult. And I had one of the worst shoulder injuries anybody's ever seen. And all I could think of is what about those other people who have this kind of, who had or have this kind of injury? They hear what I heard. They're not martial artists. They're not married to physicians and they are living in terrible pain. And they're just they're The rest of their lives are over because some surgeon says no. And they don't know how to keep at it, okay? And I think to myself, this is not right. Like, I knew when I walked in what was thought of me. I voiced it. You know, my whole idea was just walk in as a martial artist. Get people to teach you what you don't know. Be respectful. Be polite. Be quiet. Listen. And if I could have walked out and just said, okay, thank you. That's really good. I'll see somebody else. I would have. And I was trying the best I could. But when you keep getting lectured at and you keep getting lectured at and somebody keeps telling you, no, this is the way it is. You think to yourself, what is the best way to deal with this? Because I can keep walking out, but in the future, because I'm not always, you know, may not always have my husband. Okay, Um, not everybody here is married to a physician. What's the best way for people to deal respectfully with that personality, if you're, you know, if you're a disabled person, you're going to see a lot of doctors. What's the best way to deal with that personality type? The best way is, as we've talked about almost the entire hour, is demonstrating that you understand what they, what it looks like from their end. Okay. They don't think you understand. You couldn't, how, Linda, how could you possibly understand? You didn't go through, you know, 15 years of schooling. You haven't done, you know, 150 surgeries like this. You have no idea. You don't know. Okay, to your point, as a martial artist, teach me. Now, the no that you're getting, the pushback that you're getting from the physician or the the, the surgeon, again, not the behavior, what's driving it. What would Ask yourself, what would cause him or her to say no to you? Well, also, here's the other thing. If my husband had walked in with the same injury, he would have gotten different treatment. Because? Because he's a physician. Right. And you're not. Well, yes, that's correct. But respect should be respect. It should be, but it's not. That's, that's, that's utopia. That's a perfect world. We're not getting that. So what are you going to do? You're going to be that old man, old woman that just stands on the beach and shakes his fist at the sea, are you going to navigate? So here's the, here's I'm, the thing. I'm polite. I'm Canadian. I just say thank you. And I just turn around and leave, <laughs> you know. But here's, here's the other thing I want you to consider. A no, a pushback, a hesitancy, a reluctance on the part of anybody, I don't care what space we're talking about, is a manifestation of fear. Mm-hmm. The sooner you demonstrate that you understand that they are operating from that 
perspective, the better the conversation is going to go. They just don't think that you understand what they're going through, what their world looks like. How could you? You're not in the ER or the OR. You didn't go to school as long as I did. How could you possibly understand what's going on? Notwithstanding that you're married to a physician, you don't understand me and what's going on with me. So the, 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 the faster you do that, and, and this is something that's, this is not a one and done thing. You're not displaying tactical empathy at one portion of the conversation only. This is, remember I said earlier, it's incremental. It's not, there's no magic bullet. So this is you trying to uncover where that's coming from because anybody anywhere on the planet would do anything for you if they trusted you. And the no is born out of mistrust. And it's not, it's not, it's not trust like you're not going to um, do anything to harm them. It's trust in understanding or having them understand that you know what the lay of the land looks like from their perspective. That's it. In your situation, when you're dealing with, when you're talking to a, an auto mechanic about working on your car, when you're talking to your real estate agent about buying a house, whatever the case may be, people want other people to understand their perspective. The sooner you do that, the sooner you reduce the opportunity or the chances of them viewing you as a threat. When you're not viewed as a threat, the amygdala settles down. And that's when collaborative dialogue starts to take place, but it doesn't start, it won't start to take place until you demonstrate that understanding. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Gustavo. Thank you, All Derek. Right. Oh, yes, of course. Any other questions? No, I just wanted to say thank you uh, to Linda because that your example um, uh, is, is really perfect. We have a situation with our son who has a, a visual impairment that is um, not really well understood. And we were lucky enough to travel to um, the, a place where it was understood over the summer and gather evaluations and data. And now we're in a position where we're back in our state of Arizona and we're trying to communicate to um, you know, to the school and to the, the people um, in the state that are responsible for helping us with his care. And in this case, we we kind of are the experts, and it's really, really, really tough. And these um, really these tools that you're putting in our hands and, and discussing with us are are so um, useful. I've picked up on so many things already. Um, just to, you know, we have one person in particular that is, all she wants to do is tell me about how she has 30 years of experience. Um, but this is new stuff that we, we just learned that they're still learning in Massachusetts about, you know, his vision. And so we're constantly trying, I'm, and I had been trying to think of my strategies. I've tried many different ones with this lady and um, fallen flat on my face each time. So. I think I've got a new plan here. <laughs> oh, good, Kim. I'm, I'm glad to hear it because here's the thing. I, th I think you, you've gotten to a place where um, you understand the difference between listening and waiting to talk. Which one do, do most of us do? Do we listen or do we wait to talk? Most of us, most of us operate at level one and two of listening. That's intermittent listening, where we're listening long enough to get the gist of the other side. And then we refocus on our own internal monologue. And we, we intentionally take 50% of our brain offline and out of the conversation because that's the, that little voice inside of us is vying for a chance at the podium. Or rebuttal listening, where we're listening long enough till they say something we know we have an answer for. We know we can argue it. And now we're just waiting for them to shut up. So we can jump into the conversation and tell them how brilliant we are. So true. And that's, 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 that's not, it, it, we do it because that's what we've been trained to do. We do it because it's easy. Listening at the level that I'm talking about, that I was talking about with Linda and, and Viola, that takes work. That takes effort. You'll find yourself, even after a five minute conversation, 
where you're using these skills, you're going to be, you're going to be wiped out because you have to focus in to understand what their life's narrative is, what symbolism they they're giving their statements, what, what the, the road looks like for them. It's hard to do, which is why most of the population can't operate at that level 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Knowing that, you guys have to understand the importance of being able to dial it up when it's necessary. Dial it up when it's necessary. And in your case, you know, you've been dealing with this one particular person with 30 years of experience over and over again. She's already, he or she has already given you a treasure trove of information about what's important to them. And I bet you in all of your conversations, you haven't articulated those back to them. And the minute that you do, she'll stop throwing that 30 years of experience in your face because again, the reciprocity of tactical empathy, you do it first. Now you've obligated them subconsciously. You've obligated them to give it back to you. When you ultimately get to your ask, when you ultimately say, Hey, I want this surgery or, Hey, I don't want this surgery or, Hey, here's the new stuff that we just learned about how to care for my, my child with this impairment. Mm -hmm. Now, because you did it first, you bring those negative emotions down, you re-engage the prefrontal cortex and they're obligated. She gave it to me first. Now I have to give it back. So just keep that in mind the next time you deal with her and or him and watch the difference in how she interacts with you during that interaction and then going forward. Because of, remember, using the skills the way I've outlined them here on this call makes them feel good. Yeah. They're getting high, dopamine and oxytocin. They don't know why, but they just know all of a sudden I like talking to Kim a little bit better. And so you're the outlier, Kim. They're not getting that anywhere else in their circle. So the next time that you call, the next time you send an email, they're responding quickly because they want another hit of that dopamine. They want another hit of that oxytocin. And you've created a collaborative ally going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Gustavo. And Derek. <laughs> Right. We have we have about a minute left. If anybody else has any questions, now's the time. Don't be shy. Is Black Swan training physicians? That's a that's an excellent question from Marcelo. Oh. <laughs> um, we we have in the past. We haven't probably in three years. And, you know, you can just, one of those years is a, is a wash. So, you know why, uh, but we haven't been in, in with a hospital group in about, in about three years, but we have in the past and, you know, based on talking to Gustavo, based on talking to, uh, based on some of the, uh, the limited research I've done, um, you know, they're still suffering. You know, I've, I've anecdotally found that surgeons are some of the most, the stories that I hear from, OR and ER nurses about the conduct of surgeons is appalling, which means that there's still a need out there. You know, they've been doing uh, care measurements now since the early 2000s. And, you know, based on the fact that I'm on this call, it's still a problem. So to answer your question, we have in the past, we're not doing it now, but we're going to revisit that issue here shortly. Uh, Gustavo has motivated me in that regard. So, Thank you, Derek. It's highly necessary. And I'm glad, I hope to see you guys, you know, get on that. It's, it's really important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, all right. Our time well, is up. Gustavo, do you want me to close it out? Please do, Faye. All right, so I wanna thank everyone again so much for joining. A huge shout out to Derek and Gustavo. Uh, I was able to learn so much and um, this session just has gone beyond my uh, expectation and everybody has stayed. Great questions, I've gotten great reviews and please help us spread the word. Let us know how you like the session. You know, I would love to have Derek come back again, um, but just, you know, definitely uh give us your feedback and who else you would like to hear from we would love to do this on a regular basis it just proven to be so helpful
Yeah. Say, I, I was uh, honored to be a part of it, and I consider you and Gustavo friends. So you guys have my direct line. You know how to get in contact with me if you want to set it up again. Uh, Q1 of 2022. Let's do it. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, I also loved uh, Derek's um, bio, and also remember to uh, check out his book. Please and, do. Um, yeah, uh, so accusation, uh, accusation audit is a link that I included. So we'll follow up with the recording of the session. I'll also provide a transcript as well for everyone who has participated in the session. Thanks again so much. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.